The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Carl Sinn. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Hey, hello, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Early Modern History Seminar. Um, we're really delighted today to welcome uh, Brody Waddell um, to speak to us. Um, Brody's a senior lecturer at Birkbeck University of London, um, where he actually supervised my PhD. So it's a pleasure to welcome him um, to Trinity, albeit virtually. Um, Brody generally is a historian of social and economic life in early modern England. Um, he's the author of God, Duty and Community in English Economic Life, um, published by Boydell in 2012. Um, among lots of different activities, um, he's one of the, well, the co-founding founding editors of the Many-Headed Monster blog, which is, if you don't know, it is a really fantastic um, resource um, online, all sorts of material um, for, you know, for scholars and, and, and for students of, of the early modern world. So check that out if you haven't seen it already. Um, he's currently starting a new project around non-elite writing practices um, in, in, the, uh, in early modern England. And he recently um, completed a collaborative AHRC-funded project, The Power of Petitioning in 17th Century England. And I hope we'll hear lots about that project today. So I'll hand over to Brody. Thanks very much, Charlie. Um, do just wave or shout or whatever if uh, my audio goes or, or the slides disappear or something like that, because the, these things do happen every once in a while. Um, but yes, so today I'm talking uh, really about the some of the results from that project, um, which, if I can go on to the next slide, is this um, a, a HRC funded project called The Power of Petitioning in 17th Century England, which is a bit of a misnomer because we started in 1570 um, and we got a little bit of extra funding from the Economic History Society to get some uh, 18th century petitions as well. So it's really in, in early modern England um, over about uh, a 200 year period or so. Um, and it's very much a collaborative project. So Jason PC was my co-investigator. Uh, Sharon Howard was our uh, postdoctoral research associate, did some fantastic work gathering stuff up and, and making, helping us make sense of it. Um, and we also had some, some freelancers doing work on it as well. Gavin Robinson, Tim Wales, Anna Cusack and Sarah Burt all contributed in various ways. So I wanted to make it clear that this isn't just me. Um, this is coming from a, a bunch of us who have been involved. Um, but today I'm going to be talking about one particular aspect of it, which is uh, local petitioning. And I suppose before I get into this, a word about uh, what I'm going to be uh, looking at in particular. So I'll say a few words about what a petition was at this time. Um, one slide on how common was this thing uh, that was going on. Uh, the why question is very important, obviously. Why were people submitting these petitions? Who was submitting these petitions? How did they do it? So that's thinking about the sort of rhetoric and the sort of mechanics of it. Um, and then the stepping away uh, and thinking about the broader question of, of what this tells us about popular politics uh, in, in early modern England uh, specifically. So that's my agenda for the next little while. So what was a petition? Well, I expect for many of you, this will just be kind of a reminder rather than new information. Um, but in the early modern period, it was definitely broader um, than uh, what we might think of it today. So we have at the, the left there, 
um, an example of a mass petition printed, in fact, um, that was sent to Parliament that looks quite a bit like what we would expect it to look like today, um, though notably the printed version doesn't include a big list of signatures. Then there's the other end of the spectrum, which is the one in the middle there, a brief individual handwritten petition submitted to local magistrates asking for poor relief um, from the 1590s. And then on the right, we've got something that's kind of in between, which is to say a collective petition. It's from a large-ish group of people, depending on how you think of large, um, submitted to a local magistrate uh, about an alehouse from the 1620s. And the, I'm just giving you these examples to give you a sense of the range. I'll be coming back to more specific examples in a few minutes. Um, so that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about petitions. All the ones I'm going to talk about all come from the, the latter two categories. I'm not going to be talking about these big mass petitions, printed petitions submitted to Parliament or to the King. I'm thinking about local ones submitted to the local justices of the peace um, at the, the quarter sessions. Um, and there were quite a few of them, as this next slide, I hope, makes clear. Now, this is a bit of a mess. Um, I, it's because the, the nature of archival survival means that you, you get lots of gaps and, and lots of sort of patchiness in terms of trying to quantify anything from this period. Um, but what you can see, I hope, is that we have very, very few surviving petitions to local magistrates from the, uh, basically from the 1560s, 70s, 80s, a few of them, but not many. Um, it really kicks off in the 1590s and at the very beginning of the 17th century. And we can see it increasing uh, wherever we have records of quarter sessions uh, from that period. Um, and then it, I'm still trying to figure out what we might think of as a peak, but somewhere in the say middle quarter of the, the 17th century, there's a peak in terms of petitioning. Um, and then in most counties, it begins to uh, decline, become rarer, at least in the archives. Uh, in the later 17th century, though it's notable that some of the largest numbers we have are actually late 17th century ones, because some of the counties where they have really excellent records, places like Lancashire, for instance, um, don't really kick off until the mid to late 17th century. That's when their, their records uh, start in a big way. So um, suffice to say, we're talking about lots and lots of these individual documents um, being submitted to the, the magistrates. In some cases, we're talking uh, about upwards of 500, even 1,000 uh, in a decade from a particular county, um, which means that in practice, in some places, you're talking about a petition submitted every year for pretty much every parish in the county in terms of the quantities involved. So lots of people were involved in this and lots of them were submitting petitions. What did people petition about? Well, this is uh, my attempt to work through some of the data that we have for 14 counties, um, where we have actually, uh, we have the original petitions uh, and we have um, coded them according to a set of categories um, in order to, to try and make sense of what they were petitioning about. And this is the results of all this. So <laughs> many hundreds of hours of work in a single, uh, in a single slide for you. Um, and within those categories, I've then grouped them into these four slightly larger categories. And, and I think that the uh, one that is in some ways the most interesting is this first one, um, which uh, I've called poor relief and public funds. And it's mostly about poor relief, but poor relief in its widest sense. So that includes parish poor relief, um, 32%, uh, but also military pensions, which were uh, supplied by the county rather than the parish. Lots of petitioning about parish rates, local taxation, 
um, largely poor rates, but also things like highways and, and stuff like that. And then this paternity maintenance one is about uh, who is responsible for, for poor children and illegitimate children. Uh, and often it's uh, women asking for maintenance orders against uh, uh, the fathers um, and occasionally fathers asking for um, uh, to, to, to get rid of maintenance orders. Then we have licensing. So both of these are um, petitions relating directly to new statutes that were passed in the, um, in the, in the Tudor period. First, about alehouses, so you needed to have a license to open an alehouse. Second, about cottages, you needed to have a license in order to build a cottage on a small plot of land. Um, and so you see lots of petitions about these. The next big category is litigation and crime. Uh, mostly, this is, it's very hard to categorize some of these things, but mostly these were petitions for mercy, so they're for release from prosecution or release from prison. Um, but a substantial number of them were also for prosecution, asking for someone to be prosecuted or punished in various ways. And then lots of other things down at the bottom there, which I'm not going to bother talking about, but they're interesting in their own right. Happy to take questions on them, of course. Um, and if we think about change over time, uh, again, I hope the slide makes this clear. What we can see is that the two largest categories, which are the, the two largest sort of meta categories, which are poor relief from public funds and litigation and crime, basically switched over the course of the period. In the beginning, in the early uh, 17th century, um, the largest category was litigation. Uh, and then by the mid to late 17th century, it was poor relief and public funds. But throughout, poor relief was, and public funds were very important, and it was increasing uh, over time. So, uh, that's the, the what question. Let's think about who. Just need to give me a moment to get my notes here. Uh, so who? Um, again, it's uh, uh, this is something where we have coded the particular uh, petitions for a select number of counties. A uh, total of 1,400 petitions. We've, we've got this information for uh, in an easily just digestible form. And what do we see? Well, perhaps unsurprisingly for those who've, who've looked at this stuff before, the largest category are single individuals. That was the most common um, first, uh, the most common way to send a petition to, to the local magistrates. Um, about two thirds of them were single named individuals. And I've given you an example under each of these so you can get some sense. Marjorie Glover um, asking for poor relief in 1605. A substantial number of them were from groups of individuals, uh, named individuals. So you have, for instance, uh, named inhabitants from a particular town uh, petitioning for an alehouse license on behalf of a local widow. Uh, and in some cases, we're talking about just a few named individuals, two, three, four. Uh, in other cases, we're talking about 20, 30, 40. Uh, it does uh, depend quite a bit on the, the nature of the, the petition. And then collective, which I think are in some ways the most interesting, and I'm going to talk about them more in a minute. Uh, collective are when it doesn't actually have a single named individual. Um, so we have no idea who these people are. Uh, and instead, they talk about themselves as a collective, the inhabitants of the town of Orkong, for instance. Um, again, I'll come back to that. I've also put up a, a, um, a pie chart there so you can see the gender breakdown. The majority male, um, but a uh, about 20% um, were women, solely women, and then there was also about 4% were mixed groups, including both men and women, 
Uh, and then there's this collective group where it's, it's unclear if it's uh, all men or, or men and women, et cetera. So that's hopefully uh, a first stab at the who question. Um, but let's put some, some meat on these bones and look at a few examples in a bit more detail, because I think when we do that, we can begin to see the politics of petitioning emerge uh, in a way that becomes, it's quite difficult to see when you're simply looking at it in this sort of quantitative way um, at the, the macro level. So here's one individual petitioning. Marjorie Glover of Ripple in Worcestershire, uh, widow petitioning for relief. And I'm not going to read out this whole thing, um, but I will sort of highlight a couple of things. The first thing to note is that in some ways it very much conforms to what we would expect in a, uh, in inverted commas, traditional um, petition. So it's highly individual. And it's uh, from one single individual. There's a strong rhetoric of sort of helplessness and of uh, a need for mercy. Um, and yet, for all that, it also is drawing on new ideas about justice and about the state and its role in individual people's lives. There's, uh, according to Marjorie, um, the local parish has refused to provide her with relief. Um, and indeed, not only her, but other people uh, have been refused relief. There is no collection made in the said parish for the poor, according to his majesties in that case. Uh, so in other words, they are supposed to be providing uh, the poor with relief, and they are not. So parish officers are, according to Marjorie, breaking the law. And I like the fact that she closes and includes it in the, the main part of the petition as well. Uh, she closes with uh, a asking for help for, the, um, for their relief and for the advancement of justice. So there's an appeal for justice um, for, for, uh, for a right, basically. Um, that I think is quite interesting. So that's a first example to get us started on this aspect of uh, these petitions, to say that what we might think of as the politics of petitioning. Let's look at another one. So here's the inhabitants of East Grinstead, Sussex, petitioning for an alehouse license, not for themselves, but rather for a local widow, um, Alice Underith. Um, so it's not from an individual, it's actually from a coalition, uh, from a group of uh, what they call themselves poor neighbors, inhabitants whose names are here underwritten. Uh, it's designed to meet the new statutory requirement, well, newish was uh, what, um, something like 40 years old at this point, uh, a new statutory requirement for a license in order to open an alehouse. So it's uh, about sort of new obligations that the state is laying on people at this time. Um, and it appeals to some quite traditional sorts of things. She is aged, lame, well known to us to be, uh, of long time to be of good report and conversation. So it's saying that she's, you know, a, a good moral individual. She is deserving uh, of, of help. Um, but it's uh, doing it in this, this slightly interesting way. So it, it's including three officers. It mentions um, the church wardens, um, and I've forgotten what the other one is. Uh, oh yeah, a, a constables and a bailey. Uh, but it's not really about them as officers because it calls themselves your poor neighbors, inhabitants. And it seems to be as much about numbers as anything. There are 20 subscribers altogether. Uh, and that seems to be the thing that gives it its its power, its uh, sort of political heft. And I think that that, again, is something that um, 
in even in 1598, we're already beginning to see the power of numbers being something that counts in petitioning in a way that we might not expect in a local uh, petition about uh, an alehouse license. The final thing I want to draw attention to is the fact that Alice doesn't actually sign it. She's mentioned in the body of the petition, uh, but she's not one of the subscribers. Um, and that's uh, interesting because, of course, according to my quantitative count, this would count as a um, a male petition because all of the subscribers are male. Uh, but it was almost certainly organized by Alice, the widow herself, who requested the petition explicitly, uh, requested our charity, it says. Um, uh, so she doesn't sign it, she doesn't subscribe it, uh, but it is nonetheless a petition that seems to have been organized by a poor widow uh, who managed to get together these, these 20 individuals, including three officers, to subscribe to support her request for a, uh, an alehouse license. So that takes us one step further from what we might think of as the, the stereotypical individual traditional conventional petition. Um, and we can go uh, further still. So here is a petition from the inhabitants of the town of Walkern in Hertfordshire, uh, a petition for the removal of a pauper. So this is uh, asking for a, a particular pauper uh, who is making a claim on the parish to be sent somewhere else. Um, so uh, the, 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 the widow who had been residing in Middlesex had, been, had arrived in this town um, and the, the town is much oppressed with poverty. So the ask for the magistrates to say, uh, vouchsafe unto us that legal assistance that the law in this case provideth, which again, interesting formulation there, very much a, a legalistic claim uh, rather than simply asking for, for you know, mercy or wisdom or, or whatever. Um, and yet closing with the, the usual prayer, we the said supplicants shall daily be bound to pray for your honors. Um, and finally, the, this is a collective petition. So there are no subscribers. There is no single individual uh, other than the, the pauper actually mentioned in it. Um, it is from the inhabitants. And it's simply uh, assumed that this is, is a, a legitimate way of, of presenting their voice. It is a, a collective voice speaking as a corporate body rather than individuals or even as office holders, um, still adopting that first person plural, we, um, rather than, uh, you know, simply the inhabitants. So it's, it's um, working there as a, an interesting, as I say, political formulation of how they're representing themselves to the authorities, to the local magistrates, um, it, basically anonymous as a, a, this sort of collective body. Um, and here's uh, another one. So this is the ministers and inhabitants of Stock and Buttsbury, Essex, petitioning about alehouses. Uh, they begin with the uh, focus on legalism. Most excellent laws have been made for the suppressing of that most loathsome sin of drunkenness, and yet that odious vice increases more and more. So we can see even over the course of a single sentence, it shifts from that sort of legalistic claim to one that is basically moralistic, which is, uh, and it continues in this vein in the main body of the petition, um, talking about the, the problem, uh, problems that these tippling houses create. Um, so we, two inns are sufficient. We most uh, instantly desire that all the rest of the tippling houses be suppressed, subscribed by eight men, the, the minister uh, of the two different parishes, um, the collector, uh, church warden, um, constable, clerk, and three other men. So 
Here again, we have a collective voice. There's the we, uh, but they're more clearly drawing on their credibility as office holders, as, as people with uh, particular positions, the minister, obviously, and then these different parish officers. Uh, so these eight individuals become sort of the delegates, we might think, for the inhabitants of these two parishes. So they're, they're, uh, they're again, something political is going on here, isn't it? Where it's shifting from um, the whole parish petitioning or some select group within the parish petitioning to the parish as delegated to these particular office holders asking for something. Um, the final point I want to make about this one is that it's uh, very willing to defend two of these inns, uh, while also asking for the suppression of all the other tippling houses, which perhaps I think suggests the factional politics that may be going on here. Um, this is not simply about drinking. In fact, this isn't about drinking at all. It's about the problem of too much uh, of a particular type of drinking in particular places. Um, so I think I would not be at all surprised if it was in fact the innkeepers of these two parishes who organized this petition in order to try and sort of stamp down the competition. And they happen to, to get the ministers on side um, through this kind of moralistic appeal to the problems and, and vice of drunkenness. Um, so that's uh, that's one where, again, we can see a, a collective uh, petition, but working in a slightly different way from the other two. Um, and alehouses uh, show us, I think, some of the most interesting politics of, of local petitioning around. Um, Mark Hillwood's uh, book on uh, on this is, is very good. Uh, and in some ways, I'm just sort of drawing on that and expanding it by by looking at a bunch more petitions. But uh, I think this particular case that we have it from one particular village in Worcestershire is very revealing because over the course of 11 years, uh, we have a whole series of petitions and counter petitions, um, as well as a few other legal actions, all uh, um, involving alehouses in various ways. So the first one that I've been able to find is this 1610 complaint that there's this Thomas Morley who allowed abuses and disorders in his alehouse. Um, unfortunately, in, in several of these cases, we don't have a list of subscribers, but there clearly was one in the original. So this, this kicks things off. Um, this kick thing, kicks things off. And then we have a counter petition almost immediately from the inhabitants claiming that Morley is honest and civil and the village desperately needs a vittler. Um, and this one has 20 subscribers, a substantial uh, number for a single village. Two years later, you have inhabitants petitioning against uh, one Elizabeth Morley, who seems to be the wife of Thomas, uh, for selling extraordinary ale, a lovely idea, extraordinary ale, um, basically they means really strong beer, um, and for encouraging idle drunken fellows, and un, again, unfortunately, an unknown number of subscribers because that, that final page doesn't survive. Um, then you have a, another petition along the same lines in that same year, but this time targeting two new alehouse keepers for selling a pint a penny, causing disorder and abuses, uh, et cetera, et cetera, 18 subscribers. A year later, the uh, parishioners, the self-declared parishioners led by the church wardens uh, petition against the Morleys, against Bird, and against Kempster uh, for disorderly alehouses, but also for a bunch of other things. Now they're including uh, violence, um, drawing away apprentices and, and various uh, other sorts of sins and vices. 
this one, interestingly, is not subscribed by uh, a bunch of different inhabitants. It's subscribed by two church wardens. So we can see this working in this sort of delegatory way that I, I talked about when I was talking about that Essex one. Um, things seem to have really kicked off in 1613 because you have Elizabeth being bound to appear at the sessions. Uh, and then not long after five from people from the Morley family are indicted for rescuing Elizabeth from the constable. That is to say, uh, they, they grabbed her after she'd been arrested uh, or, or seized by the constable. Um, so th this is uh, now moved from simple petitions to active, uh, what we might think of as, as direct action. Um, there's uh, two, two unlicensed alehouses uh, are indicted at the quarter sessions a few years later. And then in 1621, we have another petition uh, against William Byron and Thomas Morley, again, <laughs> for unlicensed alehouses with vagrant and lewd persons, 11 subscribers. So you can see how, I suppose, uh, this one village ends up being this kind of hotbed for petitioning and counter-petitioning which does not exist in a vacuum. It's clearly part of this wider factional politics. It also involves direct action. That uh, also involves other ways of seeking legal redress, such as getting these, these uh, alehouses indicted at the quarter sessions, as well as petitioning against them. Um, but nonetheless, petitioning is a key part in all this. Uh, and I've worked through the names that we do have. As I said, we don't have names for all these petitions. And we've got 36 individual men's names, 14 of whom subscribe to more than one of these petitions. Um, so 36 men perhaps doesn't seem like a huge number from uh, today's perspective. But this, this village, Baton, actually only had 30 men who contributed to the lay subsidy tax uh, a century earlier when we have you know, the closest thing we've got to a, a sort of census. Uh, so it seems like uh, most, perhaps uh, the vast majority of, of Baton's householders probably signed their name to one or more of these petitions. Um, that is to say, the whole village was involved in one way or another in this battle over the alehouses, uh, and petitioning was an absolutely central part of it. So let's take uh, one more example. Um, this is uh, one that really pushes the limits of local petitioning, because this is from the inhabitants of uh, four different parishes, and they subscribe their names. For, this is Cheshire in, in 1608. Um, it's a very traditional in one sense because it's about litigation and it's basically asking for mercy for this particular man, uh, John Yates, of honest and civil carriage and painful and industrious labor. Uh, the rhetoric there is pretty telling, I think, um, uh, against an accuser who's a man in great decay and want uh, uh, and small credit. So very much calling uh, this notion of sort of uh, economic credibility uh, to, to bear in their petition. Um, but what makes it unusual, what makes it in fact extraordinary, is that it's subscribed by 99 different men um, and uh, and possibly women, though I, I don't recall seeing any women's names. I should have double checked that before putting the slide in. Um, 99 different men uh, from four different parishes, uh, including uh, at least three uh, people with, with particular uh, offices. That is to say, the, the vicar uh, of one parish, the minister uh, of another, and the parson of another. Um, so we've got uh, a very large number of people involved um, in what must have been a huge organizational effort. And this is what I mean when I say 
um, the politics of local petitioning because this was undeniably a political act. In order to get 99 different people uh, across four different parishes to sign on to this, uh, it involved uh, doing politics. It involved, uh, you know, calling calling power into to, or um, using using local power and, and factional uh, alliances in order to pull these men together and, and put their names to this. Um, and they are very much making a claim on the basis of numbers that yes, we've got our three men who are local ministers, that's important, or they wouldn't have bothered putting that the, their, their title in there. Uh, but notably, those are the only three men who bother to put in their title. We don't have any people who call themselves the constable or church warden or anything like that. Um, what this petition is saying is that what matters is that there are 99 people uh, who are making this request. Um, and that's why it should be taken seriously. Um, so, so yes, this must have been a, a huge organizational effort, and I think it tells us something about the the way that petitioning, even on what we might think of as an extremely traditional uh, topic, let us say asking for mercy uh, for a particular individual who, who's well-liked in the community, uh, can turn into something that is uh, far from traditional, which is to say a large-scale uh, multi-parish uh, campaign um, that involves uh, about 100 people, uh, well, probably more, but 100 people who, who actually put their names to this thing. And here's my final specific example, the one that I want to close with. Now, I wish we had a list of subscribers with this one, but we don't. There may have been one uh, that's now lost, um, but we don't have one. There, there's none in the, in the Worcestershire archives. Um, but what we do have is a petition from a group that described themselves as uh, being, quote, many hundreds uh, in number in the counties of Worcester and uh, Salop, so Shropshire, um, having wives and families to maintain, having served their apprenticeships to the trade of fishing, and have no other calling to maintain their families. So we're talking about uh, fishermen here. Um, and we're talking about what claim to be many hundreds in number, um, though without a subscription list, we have no idea what that, that means in practice. Uh, they claim that they are disabled and impoverished by certain countrymen of villages bordering upon the said river Severn, uh, who work with forestalling nets which take multitudes of fish. And they actually list off, um, I think it was six or seven individuals who they say are, are particular offenders here. Um, and in fact, they say that they were previously indicted, but, but no further action had been taken against them. So what's the request? Well, the request is, quote, a general order, a general order that all such persons may be restrained that so offend and persist against the good of the kingdom, whereby your petitioners may have some livelihood to subsist with all. Uh, and that final line, which uh, you can see, I hope, on the, the manuscript image as well, and this for God's love. Um, so what do we have here? Well, we have this uh, opening claim of extraordinary numbers, many hundreds, not just from multiple uh, parishes, but actually from two different counties. So it's interesting that they're, they're submitting this to the um, magistrates of, of Worcestershire, uh, given that this says to be from, from more than one county. Um, so that's the kind of the, the who question, which I think is interesting in itself. But the how question is just as interesting because how do they justify themselves? Well, they cite the paternal duty that they have to their families. So this notion of sort of uh, the reinforcing the patriarchal order. 
um, we have the, the idea of having served in apprenticeships. In other words, they're saying that they have some kind of a legal right to, to do this, to, to undertake this fishing um, that the others do not. Uh, we have a claim of impoverishment. So this is a, a sort of notion of weaknessness, weakness or, or helplessness, which is so common across petitions of, of various sorts at this time. Uh, we have their mention of previous indictments against these individuals. They're citing, in essence, legal precedent. Uh, where they talk about, quote, the good of the kingdom. So they're making a claim for the common good. It's not just about them. It's about uh, the, the common good, the, the, the welfare of uh, the entire population. Uh, and they close off with a prayer and then with for God's love. So an appeal to Christian morality. Really, I think, quite a remarkable spectrum of justification, given that uh, ultimately this is uh, about some people with big nets uh, on the river taking too many fish. Um, so I think that it's, it's uh, remarkable just, just how broad they cast their nets, pun very much intended, in terms of drawing on these different sorts of reasons for uh, calling the, the magistrates to act. Um, but the uh, second part of that is that they're also claiming to speak for a coalition much larger than an individual family or even an individual parish. They, they claim to be speaking for this sort of group of individuals who are united not by their locality, um, not by even by the county, uh, but rather because that they all have invested in this in their apprenticeships and all are impacted by this particular action that's happening across two different counties. Um, so I think that too is very telling. And I think that it's it's particularly telling this is coming in 1608, perhaps, um, because this is really, as I mentioned before in that slide, this is when these petitions are taking off in terms of numbers. Uh, so what we're seeing here is that people are getting used to the idea of using these local petitions in order to push for the things they need. And we might think that this particular uh, petition, which is um, uh, fair to say very unusual, um, is really kind of pushing the limits of that to as far as it can possibly go, um, much further than the kind of mainstream individual petition for poor relief. Uh, this is a, a big group of a coalition of individuals um, trying to push for uh, a, a um, action on a particular uh, economic um, malpractice they see going on in their area. So, um, Let's turn back then to, to kind of round a few things up. Well, I mentioned who petitioned at the beginning and I gave you those uh, pie charts, but I think now that I've shown you some examples, we can revisit that question from a slightly different angle. So we might think when we're looking at those pie charts that what we're talking about is large numbers of particular uh, you know, individuals, isolated individuals um, who are desperate straits and, and just asking for, uh, for mercy or relief. Um, certainly that uh, does come uh, along every once in a while, and you do occasionally see petitions for poor relief in which they're explicitly claiming that they are isolated, that their neighbours aren't helping them, and so on and so forth. Um, and that seems to have been uh, a, a phenomenon that did certainly occur. But most petitions, even the ones that seem to be from a single individual, were collaborative. That is to say, they involved not just the petitioner or petitioners, um, but also nearly all of them uh, involved a scribe. They had to be written by someone. Um, very few of these are, uh, are directly uh, authored by the petitioners themselves in terms of 
the, the handwriting, um, it's pretty clear that there was a, a professional or semi-professional clerk involved. Um, we have some tiny scraps of information about who these sorts of people were, but it seems um, that there were a, a number of people doing this sort of thing as an as a income stream, um, especially in the county towns, but even in smaller places as well uh, by the 17th century. So you've got the petitioners, you've got the scribe, you've got advisors. It's notable that the, uh, they're able to draw on a huge range of knowledge and they often cite particular statutes or particular precedents when they're doing this. Um, so they're clearly uh, getting advice from the people around them, might just be the neighbors, uh, it might be from the scribe, it might also be from lawyers or, or people, uh, you know, these sort of, what they call petty foggers of the Commonwealth, you know, the, the small town, um, uh, lawyers who who are not necessarily practicing in the in, uh, kind of the the big city way, um, and subscribers. So I mentioned that there is a significant number that are from an individual, but have a significant number of subscribers, supporters who are willing to sign on. This again would have involved um, collaboration, organization, and and so forth. And then the second point I want to make about the who uh, and how question are the range of modes of self representation. Yes, there were some that simply represented themselves as individuals, but it's notable that as soon as you step beyond the individual, you get this, this really quite broad range of ways of talking about themselves. So you have the corporate ones um, where the individual disappears entirely and you simply have the inhabitants of a particular place. I've given an example in, um, at the bottom there, the humble petition uh, of the chiefest and most of the inhabitants of the town of Stratford in this county. Um, a very interesting formulation, the chiefest, that just to say the, the, the wealthiest, the most important inhabitants, but also the most. So they're saying they're also majority of the inhabitants, um, making those two, we might think of almost as contradictory claims in the same line um, when talking about themselves. Then we have these uh, petitions that I'm calling delegatory, um, which involve particular office holders, basically sort of stepping in and standing in for the, the community as a whole. And we have subscriptional ones in which uh, they are, you, you have a small number that get together that basically sign on to say that, you know, this isn't about an individual, it's about a larger group of people. And then we have the mass subscription ones, um, which uh, increasingly look uh, quite a bit like the ones that are being received by the by Parliament um, in the 1640s. But you have these even before the 1640s arrived, you have um, 20, 30, 40, even 50, 60, and as we saw, 99 in one case, uh, people signing onto a petition as a, as a means of showing their support. Um, so uh, all of these are sort of emerging in the early 17th century and in a few cases uh, before that. Um, there doesn't seem to be a particular sort of rhyme or reason to what's uh, most common when, except to say that subscription does become more common over time in the early 17th century. Um, so that's that's something that is notable. Uh, but it's also clear that this was very much contested. It was, was very much an open question about which of these was most appropriate, was most likely to get the, uh, a positive response. And as a result, even within a single year in a single county, you can find all of these different modes of self-representation being pursued in various different ways and sometimes sort of mixed. Um, and as I, uh, I hope um, that example um, from the, the, the alehouse dispute in Baton makes clear, uh, often the same dispute 
you could find different uh, petitions about the same dispute using different modes of self-representation. So again, it goes back to the, the politics of this. Um, we're very much open and, and uh, up for, uh, and, and sort of flexible and, and uh, unsettled. Um, there was no uh, universally agreed way to, to do this. Uh, and so they were experimenting. Um, and that brings me to implications. So, what does it all mean for the politic or for for uh, popular politics in early modern England? Uh, well, three points to take away. I hope the first is that volume matters, um, <laughs> size matters. Uh, so, there are simply more and more of these things. There's, you know, a tiny handful of them in, say, the 1570s, um, which by say the the 1630s you're talking about hundreds uh in quite possibly a thousand or more in a single year from these various different counties um so what does that mean well it means that there are more and more people initiating petitions there are more and more people being involved in organizing petitions even if they weren't the ones who who initiated themselves um, there are more people participating in this uh, this process, and that includes the scribes as well as the people who are actually named in the petition, and of course the subscribers, the people who signed their names or, or someone else signed their names for them in some cases, uh, or left their mark on the petition. Um, so when we get to the point where we have, you know, a an average of a, a petition every couple of years from every parish in the country, uh, what that means is that you have huge numbers of people, uh, especially if we focus on the, the householders, let's say, uh, of, um, uh, of these communities, uh, being involved in petitioning in various ways. Um, even before the, the 1640s and the, the mass political petitions of that decade. The second thing we can say about them is what they were focused on matters too. They were, in one sense, practical rather than political. It's notable that uh, you see almost none of them asking for, you know, changes in religious policy or asking for particular magistrates to be removed because they are uh, they're, they're corrupt or anything like that. So they're about things like poor relief, they're about things like parish rates, alehouse licenses, and so on. In, in that sense, they're practical. Yet, they aren't simply uh, apolitical. They were public rather than private. Um, public in the sense that they were very much to do with public responsibility and, and often public fiscal matters. Uh, they were about claims to public money, um, often for claims for public money. So in that sense, they were pushing for the expansion of the involvement of the state in local, uh, local affairs. Um, and that's reflected in the rhetoric that they used. They definitely did use quite traditional, we might think of it as medieval or indeed classical, um, petitionary rhetoric of, of mercy, of prayer, of, you know, you and your uh, godly wisdoms, uh, you know, we, we ask that you and your godly wisdom shall do as you think fit, that sort of thing. Those sorts of phrases uh, appear regularly. And yet alongside that, you see the rhetoric of justice and law, and often citing particular precedents, citing particular laws in order to make their case. And this, uh, again, is something that might expect to see in the 1640s, um, very much present well before that in, in lots of these petitions. And then this final point is uh, about the, I suppose, the who and the how as well, which is to say 
that this was not something that was simply a bunch of isolated individuals. Even the apparent individual petitions were collaborative, and many of them uh, were uh, collaborative, collective uh, in, in all sorts of interesting ways. Um, Frequently, they were taking on these broader subscriptional practices, which in terms of numbers might seem small when you're talking about, you know, say a dozen or, or 20 people signing a petition. Uh, but when you're talking about a single village of a couple hundred of which um, maybe, you know, 50 or something are, are actually householders, you're talking about a broad, um, broad uh, collection of the population being involved in it. Um, and that's, I think, where I want to close, which is to say, if we take all of these three points together, I think this tells us quite a bit about where something, uh, where the sort of popular politics of the mid-century comes from. It comes from these local practices of, uh, of politics, of petitioning in particular, um, that have been developing for the previous 50 or so years, in these fights about alehouses and about uh, eligibility for relief and so on, um, that we're drawing on all of these tactics that we can see later being used by the, the levelers, by the, um, the, the uh, sort of self-described political activists um, in ways that were very much mirroring what had been going on in local parishes uh, for decades before that. And I'll close with that point. Great, Brody. Thank you so much. Um, that was brilliant, and as ever, um, so rich in well, sources and detail. And really nice to see some nice manuscripts on the screen, and some pretty good hands for, for you know for like for local uh, you know scraps of paper um, and seeing things sent into sessions papers. So that was brilliant. Um, so everyone, um, if you've got some questions for Brody, please put them in the Q and A function. Um, we've, we've got some already, but um, keep those coming in. Um, for questions in the time we've got, um, Brody, I want to start with what you finished with, which is that big question. I mean, you were talking there about the civil wars and, you know, what role does popular politics play into the, you know, how that kind of develops. So this, this big question, you, you framed your project around the 17th century and that very early chart you showed showing the number of extant petitions, showing this clear expansion from you know, from the late 16th century. So perhaps it's more like, it's quite like a long 17th century phenomenon, almost if you want to coin a new um, periodization. So what's special, you know, what, what do you think? Have a punt, like what, what it, why, uh, why is the 17th century particularly associated with positioning in this way? Why is it useful? Um, something I thought you were developing was something around the development of the English state and its bureaucracies in various ways. So if, is that, do you agree with that? If not, what is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it's, um... In some ways, it's kind of overdetermined, right? So let us say petitioning was there. It was already on the table in a sense. And our medievalist colleagues have done fantastic work on the importance of petitioning in the medieval period. Um, so that was it was something that was that was there. People knew what it was, um, and they knew that this was something that could be done. But then in the late 16th century, you see two things which I think are very important, which is basically the, the way that the English state develops in this particular moment of time. Um, and it does two things. One is that you see the takeoff of these this local forum, which is the quarter sessions, in a really big way. Um, so that creates this, it's not entirely new, you know, the quarter sessions have been around for a while, but a, a new, a, a, a sort of key sort of um, forum for dealing with these local disputes becomes more and more important in the late 16th century. 
so that means that if you had one of these disputes, that's where you would start to look is the the quarter sessions rather than perhaps say the the manor court, for instance, um, which would have uh, perhaps served a, a, that purpose a little while earlier. Um, and then alongside that, you have the state doing things like passing a bunch of laws saying, for instance, you need a license in order to build a cottage on less than four acres of land. Um, you need a license in order to have a, an alehouse. Um, you uh, you are potentially entitled to poor relief if you are poor of uh, uh, the parish. Um, so all of these new statutes, these new sort of legal provisions, um, they, they tended to have quite weak enforcement mechanisms, which meant that people were forced to sort of step into the breach and use petitioning as a way of getting these things actually working, sort of, you know, getting the state doing what it says it's going to do at the local level. Um, so those are all factors. Uh, and then the final one is, I think that there is, uh, and this is one I need to work more on, and I, I'd be interested to hear what other people think, but, you know, there is this kind of um, political ideology emerging at this time as well, which is amenable to this, which is that you begin to see um, talk, discussion of the, the, the popular voice, of the will of the people, um, begins to sort of turn up in, in a political discussion in a way that I think was much rarer before. Um, and that sort of, could, it, we might think of that as kind of the high politics connecting up to the low politics, the popular politics in interesting ways. And people begin to think that actually, you know, uh, a petition with um, 40 subscribers is more worthwhile than a petition without any subscribers, even if it's about exactly the same thing and from the same people. Um, so they begin to sort of use this as a way of, of giving force to their um, their claims, which becomes self-reinforcing, because as soon as it works for one, other people are going to start doing it as well. So yeah, that's that's very much a punt, <laughs> um, but I think all of those are, are potential factors, and it's a question of sort of weighing them up and thinking about how they, they work together at this time. Yeah, I mean, you've answered this question a little bit already, but it might expand in a particular direction. David Briscoe has asked, you know, did the practice of petitioning in these areas emerge in response to particular legislative initiatives or they arise more organically, which is a bit I think you've addressed there, but mm -hmm. more broadly, where did the idea come from that these various issues were best addressed by appealing in written form to, to particular uh, authorities? Yeah, I suppose that would be a, another, um, another element feeding into this, which is that there are changes in literacy matter. Um, you know, there are more and more people who can write, more and more people uh, who are not clerks, uh, but who nonetheless see sort of writing as a key part of, uh, of, of getting what they want out of the state. Um, so I think that that is, that is a part of it. Um, and yeah, I, I suspect this is where the archive is, is silent as far as I can tell, but I suspect it's also encouraged by the authorities, um, which is to say that they want a written, they increasingly want a written record. Um, they, Again, the quarter sessions archives in general explode in this period, the, the, these sorts of series in the archives, quarter sessions papers explode in this period. Um, whereas previously, say, uh, mid uh, 16th century, pretty much the only records you would have in the quarter sessions papers are indictments, because those formally need to be written down and had been formally needed to be written down for a very, very long time. Um, by 1600, you're, you're seeing this sort of proliferation of all sorts of different things, um, not just petitions, but also things like depositions and and um, and even just things like receipts and stuff like that. So lots and lots of paperwork um, that previously would have been handled uh, e either orally or would be on paper, but then would, no one would bother preserving it. Um, by the early 17th century, it's seen as, as a part of, uh, of 
um, governance, a part of running the state, to have this paperwork be produced and to, to keep it somewhere. So I think that's part of it as well. And I think that there would have been many um, petitions that happened before this that happened very informally, um, orally, uh, but we just don't have that that kind of evidence um, for it. So it's something that we you know we can only kind of speculate on because you know we don't have order books or things like that for the quarter sessions before this either. Yeah. Um, okay, great. We've got we've got some more questions, which is really good. Um, keep those coming, everybody. Um, let's go. What direction should we go? Um, yeah. Okay. Trixie Gad asks. I know in many cases there'll be no record of what happens subsequently, but have you been able to do any analysis of the outcomes of the petitions? Uh, yes. So I get asked this every time I present a petition. So I have an extra slide. <laughs> um, See if you can share it. I will bring it up. Yes. Just a moment. Uh, share. All right, Charlie, can you see that? Uh, yeah, we can see it. Yeah. Good. Um, so this is from Sharon Howard. Uh, so uh, this is our, our research associate um, who went and looked more closely at one particular county, the Cheshire Quarter Sessions petitions um, over the course of pretty much the 17th century, but going into the 18th century as well, where there's a smaller number of them. Um, and and coded them by responses. And we've now done this with a bunch more, but this is conveniently, she put it into this one chart. Um, and what do we see? Well, we see that about half of them had some sort of roughly positive response. Um, a substantial number were granted in full. Uh, some of them were granted uh, conditionally. Others, uh, you very often see something like referred for further investigation. Um, and then there were a small number that were actually rejected outright. And then another group that had no response. Now, unfortunately, we can't do this with all of them because they, they often don't have the response recorded. Um, but the, the headline from all this is that the often worked. Um, not always, uh, not sort of consistently, but often enough to make it worthwhile. And this is, again, where I think that thinking about this as kind of a feedback loop is quite helpful, because what you have is that as soon as one person has a successful petition, uh, they start talking about it. Um, and it becomes very appealing then to their neighbors uh, to, to do the same thing. And they start, you know, you learning from each other and, and using perhaps the same Clark or, you know, they start refining their, their kind of processes and, and organizational capacity and so on um, over the course of the, the early 17th century. Um, so I think that that's where responses are actually potentially quite important to, to get a look at because they, they tell us that what made this appealing to petitioners is that it often worked. Mm. That's great. I mean, I guess those cases like, um, where was it? Was it in Worcestershire? Was it where you had the, the, the series of stuff and you've got the back and forth and you have you know, oh, yeah. you a little micro history through it. That's pretty yeah, unusual, yeah. Um, but great when it happens. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, or, and the other thing, of course, is that the and this is the nature of local government at the time is that sometimes it worked for a little while and then it stopped working. So they had to petition again. You very regularly encounter that where, you know, they get the order, things work for a while. And then say the the overseer, the new overseer does, stops paying the pension. So they need to go back to the court to get a new order um, for the, the uh, parish release. So, yeah, it's it's very much a process where you, you um, it, it creates, you know, one petition creates more petitions in, in many cases. Yeah, it's wonderfully legalistic as well. Um, uh, okay, Quiva uh, asks, uh, did you find evidence of petitions which use history as part of their justification or argument 
about why their petition should succeed, e.g. X happened in the past, therefore our petition should be supported. She's curious mostly about things beyond living memory. Yeah, okay. Beyond living memory, I think, is a push. Um, let me just think about that one for a sec. Um, yeah, I can't think of any instances beyond living memory uh, where you do find a lot of references to, to history um, in its sort of broadest sense is petitions about rates, parish rates. And this is, you see in particular a flurry of these in the mid to late 17th century, basically saying um, when the civil wars came along, the, the new people in charge changed how we were doing rating and it messed everything up. Um, and, and we ought to go back to the, you know, the proper way we were doing it before by stint or something. So, you know, you're rated for an X number of pennies for every sheep you keep in the fold, um, uh, rather than this, this newfangled way of being rated by acres. Um, so, so there you regularly do see explicit appeals to history. And as I say, it becomes quite political, unsurprisingly, in the, in the mid to late 17th century, because it's very much said, so, you know, um, when the late troubles arrived, uh, they changed the rating system, and now we we want to go back to how it was before. So they they are sort of putting themselves in history, let's say, uh, and saying that this is uh, this is the 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 right way to do things. Um, and then this this troublesome uh, rebellion happened um, and created these new problems, and and um, we need to to revert to the previous one. Um, I think that's the most common place I see that sort of thing. Uh, you also find it not in local petitions, but in petitions to the Crown and to Parliament discussing um, uh, common land and, and common rights. Unsurprisingly, lots of rhetoric of, uh, you know, time out of memory of man and things like that for, for how things had been done. And now these, uh, these innovators, these enclosers, for instance, came along and, and messed things up. So we need to go back to how they were before. Yeah, that, that I was wondering if you going, because like, the, the history thing and what's the relation between like custom and those appeals to custom and which is you know in many ways uh, sometimes oral or in some kind of memory you know it's retained in that way versus petitioning which is a written form which is often quite legalistic and appealing to kind of state frameworks uh, you know and those are two big narratives in some way of the period and you've got this rise of petitioning but you've also got this kind of complicated change to do with custom within the political kind of culture. So what have you thought about the relationship between those, those two things? Um, yeah, a little bit. It's, it's notable that the actual word custom doesn't occur very often. It occasionally, but not often. As I say, it's nearly always in terms of, of rating petitions. Um, so I've done a search for custom and sort of related words and it doesn't come up a lot. Um, and in some ways, maybe that is about the nature of petitioning as this sort of innovative written way of doing politics that is almost pushing against customary ways of doing politics. Uh, again, you can think of examples that are explicitly rejecting history and saying, um, this new situation requires something new. Uh, and you can see it in ratings, for instance, you know, like that, that, uh, that, um, I think of one that, uh, an example that I almost put into this talk, uh, which is early 18th century, I think, which the, some parishes just enclosed a bunch of land um, and they say that now that we've enclosed and improved everything, we need to go in and, and change our assessment processes because uh, the, it no longer um, works for us and, and the number of the poor are increasing. Um, so they're, they're very much saying, you know, that 
the situation has changed. We can't rely on the customary way of doing things. We need to to try something new. Um, and I think that's you know almost more common than appealing simply to custom. Um, and again, it's notable that what they appeal to are specific acts of parliament uh, rather than than customary way of doing things. So again, it's it's this kind of legalistic, um, very textual way of thinking uh, about uh, justification. Okay, great. Well, so a couple more things then, um, which uh, I think will go broaden out from the paper a little bit um, as we finish up here. Um, so a question from Christopher Thompson, who asks, what about the petitions to Parliament in the 1580s for Presbyterian reforms of the Church of England? How significant was the rise from the late 1620s onwards of petitions to Parliament on major political issues, um, a development multiplied many times over by and after 1640? Yeah, um, I mean, I'd like to know more about late 16th century national petitions. The fact is, I don't know much about them other than that they happened. Um, it doesn't seem to have been as much work on them as I expected there would be, which is perhaps testament to the way that um, parliamentary records are, are, are not great for that period, whereas they they're, tend to be quite good by the time you get them to the 17th century. Um, but in any case, um, I do think that these things are related, and, and that's sort of what I'm, I'm trying to get at here, is that there was a reciprocal relationship between what was happening at, in the national uh, stage and what was happening in the localities. Um, and in some ways, that's entirely unsurprising. And you can certainly see it in the mid to late 17th century as the localities begin to take on the sort of politicized partisan rhetoric of, um, you know, the, the loyal inhabitants, the well-affected um, start, you know, terms like cavalier and stuff start turning up. So there it's, it's very much national politics affecting local politics. Uh, my argument is actually the 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 inversion is just as important, in fact, even more important. And and that's to say that what works at the local level, what they sort of figure out at the local level um, before it all kicks off um, is just as important. And, and that sort of builds up that expertise and that knowledge and that that organizational um, uh, expertise that they then use when the 1640s um, erupts. Um, and, and that's yeah, and, and and that's something that is is not dependent on national politics in any sort of straightforward way. But that said, I would be very surprised if it didn't kind of if the bleeding edge of local petitioning was not connected in some way to the the people and ideas uh, that uh, um, who were using petitioning at the national level. Um, so that's why I want to know more about national petitioning in the late 16th century um, because. You know, it would be unsurprising if, uh, say, local magistrates who were involved in national petitioning in various ways were also the ones who were encouraging local petitioning as a way of, um, of uh, you know, getting that dialogue going with with uh, with people in in their jurisdictions. Um, so I think there's a relationship there. I just don't have any particular evidence for it at the moment. Okay, um, great. Well, to, as a way of rounding off, um, you're starting a project um, at the moment around life writing. And I know you've worked on, you know, um, non-elite writers before and you've, you've, you've published, published on that. So what, I mean, what's the connection between petitions and, and kind of more classic forms of life writing that are studied in English literature departments? Um, is there a connection? Is it useful to think about them in that way? Are they different? Um, is that something you're interested in? How do you oscillate when you're looking between the two? What are your thoughts around that? 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, the reason why I got interested in petitioning actually is because of the autobiographical aspect of it. You know, I, I think that that um, these petitions are are so often um, uh, are life writing, but of course, very rarely written by the person whose life they are about. Um, and uh, and I suppose that that's in some ways quite typical of what we see going on in early modern life writing more generally, which is to say that it's not uh, it's it, it's it's not something that conforms to our idea of uh, a autobiography or even a diary um, from say the 18th century or the 19th century or the 20th century, um, and that there are lots of different ways of writing about yourself um, that aren't necessarily sitting down and, and writing a diary or an autobiography. Um, they can be uh, sitting down with a clerk to tell your story tale of, you know, losing your house to a fire and, and your cattle to a disease. Uh, and that's why you need relief. And that's a way of sort of telling your story. Um, and I don't think people at the time, and this is what's important here is it, it, the fact that so many of these were written by clerks and scribes is that I don't think people at the time thought that that was a problem. It, you know, the fact that it was written by someone else was not seen as as being any less authentic or or credible because of that. In some ways, it was more credible um, because it was uh, put into a, a form that made sense to the people who would be receiving it. Um, so I, th I suppose the, the simple answer to that is that we, we just need to keep hammering at the the limits of our ideas about autobiography and about life writing um because it's uh it's a big fuzzy um you know nebulous thing in the early modern period um that stretches right from these these sort of scrappy petitions written by someone else uh for some other purpose through to peeps and, and evelyn and, and people like that at the other end uh, and all of those are, are a form of of sort of telling your story Fantastic. Um, well, Brody, thank you um, so much again. Um, it's wonderful to kind of see and, and hear. The Hub is a community. Project. And print um, thank you, everyone, for um, coming. Um, yeah, look well out for the lineup the for um, future seminars and exercises online. Um, thank you all very much again. Thanks, Brody. The Hub is about impact. The hub is for everyone. Here's to the next ten years.